welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you today. Thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege again to open the Bible together this time. And I'll invite you to stay with us uh, for the whole hour because we are going to talk about um, something very important. Again, from the book of Hebrew under this theme, in the last days, the message of Hebrew. The title is Jesus, the Perfect Sacrifice. I'd like to welcome our panel today, and I will warmly welcome for the first time Dr. Wolfgang Stefani. Good to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me on the program. I would like to say thank you for joining us to Joe. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure to be part of this. Helen, it's good to have you also part of this. Thank you, Nick. It's a delight again to be here, and welcome to our team, Wolfgang Stefani. And Lija, is good to have you joining us too. Yes, thank you. It's a special privilege and a, and a blessing. Will, it's very good to have you with us. And uh, particularly, thank you for uh, putting together this uh, Bible study for today. Thank you, Nick. And we're missing Len and uh, we're missing Ken and we're missing um, Brenton as well. But um, we want to welcome you all, panel, and uh, welcome listeners to this very important topic. And I'm sure that we will have a blessing. All right, Will, uh, we know further comments. I would just like to hand it over to you. Please take us through. Thank you, Nick. You know, the idea that a man who was found guilty and executed on a criminal cross, that he should be worshipped as God, was offensive to the ancient mind. Now, there is some reference to the cross in Roman literature that clearly shows their aversion to this idea as well. Even the Jews, their law declared that a man impaled on a tree was cursed by God. And there is a reference to that in Deuteronomy 21, verses 23. So here's my question. Why should we as Christians hold the image of a cross in such high regard when it may convey defeat and shame? Indeed, the cross became the emblem of Christianity. The Apostle Paul goes even further to call the gospel the word of the cross. So as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews, let's stop for a closer look at the cross and, of course, the sacrifice of Jesus. But first, we should pray. Joe, would you like to pray for us? Yes. Father, we're here to study the immensity of your sacrifice and what it means to each one of us. The mind fails to comprehend the condescension, the humility, and yet the power that it has to save and uplift. Be among us as we contemplate and enlighten our minds and convict our hearts of the betterness and excellency and all-sufficiency of Jesus to fill our every need. All the treasuries of heaven were poured out that we may live. How can we ever thank you enough? We therefore ask you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Joe. You know, people have always had a tendency to offer different kinds of meritorious sacrifices, sacrifices to God as an exchange for forgiveness or salvation. You know, some offer God heroic acts of penance, long journeys, climbing barefoot up steep holy mountain slopes, pilgrimages to holy cities, etc. Others think there is merit in offering a life of service or acts of self-deprivation 
I was surprised to learn that some in the heathen deity worship, feeling that they needed to make a really significant and worthy sacrifice, committed their own children as burnt offerings. I'm convinced that none of these bring lasting peace and restitution. Now, despite our view on sacrifices, we know that God himself instituted a system of offerings by his people. So let me ask my first question. Why were sacrifices needed? Well, um, this beautiful uh, passage from Hebrew chapter 9, verse 22, which reads, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding the blood, there is no remission. Now, for those people who may um, not look into this very deeply, uh, about all the sacrifices of uh, the Old Testament, and we dealt with that last uh, program, we are understanding, and we again mentioned in the last program, that through the blood of Jesus Christ is the only remission for sin. There is no other way for us to be put right with God. That separation through sin in between God and man was bridged by the blood of Jesus. All the blood which was used in the rituals, in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, pointed to this particular thing, to the blood of Jesus Christ, to the cross. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, Will, the cross could be, for some people, a different message. To others, it could be the only way how we are at peace with God. I remember um, saying, coming from a very orthodox background where the cross was very important, you know, very mentioned in all aspects and every corner of the street, almost they will have a cross there and people will will pass by and will have a, a big sign of the cross. And I remember that saying that the cross I wear is not on my chest, but it's in my heart. Because it's not just something which uh, you look at and remember about things. It's something it's a, which you live every day. Certainly. Anyone else? Wolfgang? I think in the secular world, we have uh, uh, a situation where we have a sense of justice. That if something has been done wrong, there uh, has to be some sort of a penalty. Uh, if you commit a crime, you have to do the time or pay the fine. Some appropriate sacrifice needs to be made in order to expiate the, uh, the misdemeanor. And whether that ends up being called war rep- reparations or a parking or a speeding fine or a cleansing ritual really doesn't matter. It's the way that human beings have sensed something needs to be made right. And I think that um, uh, when we come to, you know, the human system, we always ask uh, the question, well, has enough time been um, of incarceration happened or has enough money been paid or has the ritual been demanding enough? Um, in other words, does the penalty actually fit the crime? The trouble is that once the penalty has been exacted, then people often ask the question still, um, you know, what's actually been achieved? You know, has the offender been rehabilitated? Has he been cured of his offending? 
Has any deep change actually been made of attitudes and desires and motivations and, and behaviours actually been altered? Has guilt been acknowledged and dealt with? Has genuine remorse been shown? Has reconciliation been brought about? Has trust been restored? Has restitution been made? All those questions are really part of what people grapple with. And often in human penal systems, we fail to be able to ensure complete resolution of the problem. And I think that in the biblical situation, the Bible offers a divine solution to an intractable human problem of sin. And I think that that's where, you know, um, the sacrifice of Jesus actually reveals a a deeper, multifaceted response uh, to a deep-rooted, profound human need. And I think that uh, this is um, where um, the sacrifice of Jesus actually provides something that human penal systems uh, and exactions of penalties can't actually um, uh, provide. I don't know. That, uh, that's sort of the background to the question for me. Profound thing, uh, Wolfgang, something that will uh, challenge our mind for a long time, in, especially if it includes the sacrifice of the Son of God. Um, Joe, I think it's important also that we remember that the offering of a lamb or sacrifice was instituted at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't to appease or mollify an angry God, an angry deity. It couldn't even possibly compensate for their sin and what they had just done because no sacrifices in the world could do that. But it was it was created, it was instituted as an act of faith in the coming seed with a capital S, the Messiah, who would eventually come and cleanse and restore all things. It was a teaching aid um, to keep them from idolatry and we might remember that many many of the offerings they offered were actually consumed by the offerer. Uh, modern people might think, well, you know, why all this bloodshed? You know, why all this gore? Why didn't God come up with something easier, something prettier? And I imagine it was just designed to illustrate how devastating the consequences of sin are and what it would cost to restore man. That's so true. In fact, uh, Joel, I was thinking that if God, after the transgression of man, uh, simply look the other way or refuse to punish the transgressors, I agree with Wolfgang, his commandments would never be enforceable and this world would have descended into chaos. But I'm glad that the Son of God offered himself as a substitute and he died in our place so that we might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, there were different kinds of sacrifices laid out in the Old Testament by God himself. I wonder if we could uh, briefly list them with a few comments. I'd like to step in here, if I may, Will. And I think we need to remember that we are talking about the uh, children of Israel and the sacrifices and the covenant that was made with God back there in the wilderness. But it was the sacrificial system was the gospel in symbols. It was a great object lesson, as uh, Joe mentioned, used to teach the people his plan of salvation. So it all pointed to Jesus and Jesus um, shedding his blood for us. But, yes, you're quite right. There was several different types of offerings, uh, and we can get bogged down with this if we really want to, but we don't. Uh, I believe there was the burnt offering that talked about in Leviticus 1, and uh, it used to be called the whole burnt offering. In other words, it differed from a lot of the other offerings 
in that the whole animal was placed on the altar and wholly consumed by fire. And I found that extremely interesting because it was representing Jesus, our Saviour. He came and offered himself completely as the Lamb of God, wholly and completely. Just And I could say so much on all these offerings, but uh, we've only got a short time, so let me just whiz through them. Um, there was the grain offering that, that was mentioned also in Leviticus. And if we looked at this offering, this grain offering um, was more like a gratitude offering, a thankful offering, thanksgiving for God's mercy and his goodness. And it was to be shared with others as an object lesson of God's care for all his people, which also brought in the peace and fellowship offering in Leviticus 3. That was implied as a communal meal with friends and family to celebrate the well-being provided by God. I I want to stop there for a moment. How often do we actually have fellowship with with our brothers and sisters, whether in the church or, uh, you know, at home or whatever, to celebrate what God has provided for us. Yes, we might ask a blessing on the food that's coming or thank him for the food we've had, but how many of us actually have a time of celebration for Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides? That was an interesting thought for me when I was studying through. You know, this offering represented Christ whose sacrifice provided peace for all of us, and I know that's what we would all love. But then there was also the sin, the purification offering, that was brought and this was predominantly if a person and again sorry it was in Leviticus 4 if a person sinned unintentionally but the important thing there were two things that were required of these people of the individual as they brought their offering they had to understand about their own sinfulness even if it was unintentional and um, it was before God but they also had to desire forgiveness enough to bring in the sacrifice, and I believe Stefani mentioned something along those lines as well. Uh, but there was also what they called the guilt and repartition offering, and that came about in Leviticus 5. So all these are between Leviticus 1 and verse 5 and chapter 5. But this one provided forgiveness in cases where restitution was possible. And, and, you know, it was only tells us, well, it very clearly tells us of God's forgiveness. And, it, but it doesn't free us from the responsibility to provide restitution where possible to those whom we have actually wronged. I remember many years ago, um, many, many years ago when I was a kid. And, um, you know, how you'll take a pen off somebody's desk or a pencil. You think nothing of it. And I remember I was short of lunch money one day and the teacher had some coins on the end of her desk and as I went by I picked up those coins so I could have lunch it was many years later when I came to the Lord that he reminded me of what I did and it was you know in my childish mind I hadn't deliberately gone out to steal from anybody we were hungry and um, I remember that I felt very impressed to write to this teacher now she probably didn't even remember me but I had the opportunity to do that And that was glory to God, not to me, because it was a very humbling experience to do that. And there are times that we actually have to take that responsibility. Well, all times we have to take responsibility for our sins. So Jesus' death provides for forgiveness or remission for our sins. Now, I, I feel we should all be saying hallelujah, amen, because these offerings back then were symbols of the Lamb of God that was to come. And uh, as you know, some of these offerings, there was the blood of the bulls, others were grain offerings and what have you. 
But we are told without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus came. He came and cancelled the penalty for our sins of the covenant. And it does also involve other elements that are as important. And the sacrificial system from the Israelite um, times, they had all these five different types of sacrifices, but each one of them, will they were necessary. They were necessary to express the richness and the meaning of the cross of Christ, as Nick mentioned the cross. They were pointing to the cross. I praise God that we no longer have to sacrifice animals. I mean, they the animals cost a lot of money. The people had to humble them. There was a big cost in, in the sacrificial system. But, oh, boy, what a cost Jesus gave when he died on the cross and he fulfilled all those sacrifices for us. That's a tremendous cost. So true. Nick? I just wanted to add there because uh, as Helen was listing some different types of sacrifices and she even mentioned about, you know, not all related to blood because, you know, there are some other things. And no, again, coming from an Orthodox background, uh, in the traditional churches, they do uh, lots of things, bring bring to the altar, to the church, to before the priest, uh, lots of sacrifices. And I was just wondering, and that question just rang in my ear, uh, what sort of sacrifices are we bringing to God today? Now, in this context, we're talking about, and it just came into my mind, uh, a passage in the Bible which says that bring your life as a living sacrifice to God. What that means? That means that we should not act or be like as we are many times, very enclosed, very uh, individualistic oriented. Uh, but we should practice those things which Helen mentioned, coming together, uh, having fellowship together, encouraging each other, uh, bring to God our life as a living sacrifice in all aspects. Yes, there's a number of ways that we can show our appreciation to God. And uh, we see that there were multiple sacrifices being performed with a continued and daily shedding of blood in the Old uh, Testament system uh, to confront the sin problem. But I'd like to ask, how does Jesus' sacrifice differ from this repetitive system of uh, offerings of the Old Testament? Will and panel, the Levitical sacrificial system, as you've already mentioned and has been mentioned a number of times, involved repetitive sacrifices and the priests not only performed the sacrifices on behalf of the people, but also for themselves because they too were faulty human beings encumbered by their own sin and limited by their fallen humanity. Now, this is where Jesus' sacrifice differs, or is rather poles apart. He did not sacrifice or did not need to sacrifice for himself on his own behalf because he was the lamb without blemish. The Bible tells us that Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. In another place, it says that he knew no sin. Paul himself tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. So in this sense, Jesus was presented as the perfect sacrifice. You must remember that he was not compelled but lay down his life willingly to be our substitute, substitute so that we may live. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 reiterate this thought. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, 
blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. And I'd like to emphasize this last part. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Now, if you may indulge me, and I will go a little further, Hebrews 2.14 allows us to zoom out, if you like, and get the bigger picture. And I'll read it to you, part of it. It says, He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. That, that shows us what the purpose was of this sacrifice. Now, Jesus' perfect sacrifice broke Satan's hold on us and freed us. Therefore, we know in another portion of Scripture, in Hebrews, it says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, his own flesh and blood. Imagine that. His sacrifice, his death on the cross, was a one-time, all-sufficient and complete, a perfect sacrifice in its ability to satisfy all the requirements and its ability to cover any sin, however great or horrible. It's just a thought, isn't it, if we come to him. And if we come to him, which all may, Jesus not only covers and pays the debt for our sin, but also can cleanse the guilty conscience. Imagine that. And restore peace within the soul. This, too, is where Jesus is far, far superior without a question, in that all the sacrifices in the world were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Hebrews 9, 9 tells us there is a power promised here, that there is cleansing, which more than just on the outside, but one that reaches to the heart, an inner purification which leads to, and I'll quote here from Hebrews 9, 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. I mean, there is so much more that could be said. The the words of Paul capture the superiority of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice here in Hebrews 10.19. And if you'll indulge me, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, this is what his sacrifice has done for us. Let us therefore draw near to God with a sincere heart, And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who has promised is faithful. This is amazing. Now, this is life and life more abundant to be able to live in such a way. Now, no Levite, no human priest, both both then and now can promise such absolution, such restoration, such peace and life eternal. Only Jesus is able to save completely. And like John, we too could say, behold the Lamb of God. Yes, child. I think just about everybody knows the rest of that, which taketh away the sin of the world. I think that Joyce covered that in in a most amazing way. I I remember when we were having a study up at Birdwood um, on this very subject and um, somebody came up with a chart, which I found very, very interesting. I won't go through the whole thing, but just in the light of looking at Hebrews um, chapter 8 and 9, gifts and sacrifices by those guilty of sin were brought 
for the old covenant through Moses, but the new covenant was self-sacrificed by a guiltless Christ. In other words, Christ died for each of us. It was focused, the old one was focused on an actual physical building where one goes to worship, but the new covenant focuses on the reign of Christ in the believer's heart. And the old covenant was a shadow. The new is a reality. The old had limited promises. The new one, limitless promises. The old one failed agreement by the people. The new one was faithful agreement by Christ. The old one had external standards and rules, and the, the new one is internal standards and a new heart. The old one limited access to God. The new one, unlimited access to God. The old one, legal cleansing. The new one, personal cleansing. The old one was a continual sacrifice. The new one was conclusive sacrifice. The old one, forgiveness earned. The new one, forgiveness was freely given. The old one was repeated yearly. The new one was completed at Christ's death. And the old one, my friends, were available to some. The new one is available to everyone, to all. Well, that's very profound. And thank you for that, Helen and Joe. You know, the concept of a sacrifice by Christ once and for all is very reassuring. Considering the Old Testament's repetitive offering system, we soon discover that Jesus is qualified far above earthly priests to intercede for mankind before God. It becomes clear that having no sin in himself, he could proceed unhindered to the heavenly sanctuary, to the very presence of God, to begin the work of offering redemption to everyone who accepts him as a saviour and substitute. Now, I think it would be helpful to understand the, the procedure instituted by God for the services of the earthly sanctuary before we consider what is taking place in the heavenly sanctuary. What happened, in other words, in the day-to-day services on earth and what is happening in the heavenly sanctuary? Well, this is an interesting one. It shows us very clearly how what happened here on earth was actually designed to give us a picture of what really happens in the greater reality of heaven. It's very interesting that the text that even Nick mentioned uh, earlier in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says that according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, a number have already made the comment that this sounds very gory, but um, I, I believe that, uh, that right from the beginning, God wanted, to, wanted humanity to understand that in the moral arena of God's law, all wrongdoing is actually a life and death matter. And forgiveness required the shedding of blood. It was a serious and solemn matter. In other words, God was really indicating that moral sin always causes the innocent to suffer. And I believe that that was something that was uh, very clearly indicated in this, uh, into why these sacrifices were done in the way that they were done in the Old Testament. Let me just quickly um, sort of talk about how it played out in the day-to-day setting. A person who had sinned, would come to the sanctuary with their sacrificial offering. They'd be asked to confess their sin over the head of the lamb or uh, that they had brought, which was interesting in and of itself because they weren't confessing their sins to the priest. 
They were actually confessing their sin over the innocent sacrifice. And then the priest would give them a knife. And that is where it becomes very confronting because they would have to kill the sacrificial lamb themselves. This would indelibly impress upon them that it was their sin that had actually caused the innocent to suffer and bear the consequences and the punishment. The priest would then collect some of the blood of the innocent sacrifice in a container and would take it into the first room of the tabernacle. And he would pray for the transgressor there at the altar of incense and then sprinkle some of the blood in front of the curtain to the second room of the tabernacle it was often called the most holy place. Now, in this way, it was interesting that there was a lot of symbolism. The blood droplets that were sprinkled on the floor there symbolized the transfer of the transgression from the sinner to the sanctuary. God would now be responsible himself to deal with the matter at the appointed time of the yearly Day of Atonement. In other words, it had moved from something that the sinner needed to do something about to something that God was doing. In the meantime, the priest would go back to the waiting sinner and assure him or her that their sin was forgiven and that they could leave in peace. In other words, their guilt was dealt with and they could be confident of God's mercy and forgiveness extended to them. But then on the yearly Day of Atonement, very important day of the calendar, even to this day in the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish system, Yom Kippur, as it's often known, while the whole congregation observed a solemn fast and acknowledged before God their waywardness and their undeserving nature of the mercy that he had extended to them, the high priest himself, with the blood of a sacrifice, would go all the way into the second room or the most holy place of the sanctuary to intercede before the Ark of the Covenant, which was representative of God's presence. And there, the record of the sins that had collected over the whole course of the year would then be ritually removed once and for all and in the end placed on the head of the scapegoat or Azazel as he was known, who symbolized Satan, the originator of all temptation and sin. And I like to think of it this way. In this way, the blame for the sins of the whole congregation was put back where it belonged. The innocent sacrifice had actually borne the consequences, had paid the penalty for the sin, but the scapegoat was to carry the blame. This indicated that Jesus' sacrifice had accepted the punishment that the sinner deserved, but in the end, at the final judgment, the blame would be put where it ultimately belonged. And at that time, God's judicial responsibility to vindicate righteousness would actually be brought about. The scapegoat would then be removed from the camp of Israel and there would be joyous celebration because a clean slate had been restored. 
And this symbolized how in the events of the second coming of Jesus and the millennium, finally, it would usher in the eradication of the very presence of sin and its consequence. Not just a clear conscience, but sorrow, crying, pain, all the consequences of sin were also going to eventually be removed. And of course, this is something that only Jesus could do. And that's why his sacrifice and what he ends up doing in the heavenly sanctuary really ends up solving the complete problem of sin and not just something that had to be ritually reobserved every year. Well answered, Wolfgang. Yes, clearly God takes transgression and sin very seriously, as was uh, shown in the Old Testament system. And uh, he's taken it very seriously right into the throne room of God and uh, is feeding on our behalf. So the concept of a judgment and uh, every person facing the court of heaven for a review and an assessment of their lives on judgment day is, is very confronting to most people. But still, I'd like to ask, should the prospect of judgment be unsettling and scary to the Christian? My answer to your question is if you have developed a relationship with Christ and you understand his sacrifice, the judgment, and you are living a life according to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, the judgment will not be unsettling and scary. Um, in fact, there's much good news of the judgment. The sad part for, for us, though, is that people that do not accept Christ as their saviour and or do not understand. That is a scary concept. I have a couple of texts, if I may, reading from the New Living Translation. It's Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. And, and it says here, so we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced? by the Lord Jesus himself, and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. So here we have the author calling his readers to pay attention to the truth that they had heard so they wouldn't drift away into false teachings. And, you know, paying careful attention to this is is what can seem like hard work, but involves focusing our minds, um, our body, our senses on the Lord. Listening to Christ means not merely hearing but also obeying. And we must listen carefully and be ready to carry out his instructions. There is another text, if I may, in Hebrews 8, uh, 10 to 12, still reading from the um, New Living Translation, Hebrews 8, 10 to 12. It says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is just such a beautiful um, text. If we move on to verse 11, it says, and they will not need to teach their neighbours, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. What a blessed, blessed promise that we've got here. I think it does our heart good to read that several times. Under God's new covenant, 
God's law is inside of us. It's no, no longer an external set of rules and principles. The Holy Spirit reminds us of Christ's words. He activates our consciences. He influences our motives and our desires. And he makes us want to obey. You know, we, if you love me, keep my commandments, the Lord says. And by doing God's will, it's something that we desire with all our heart and mind. If I may, there's another, there's another text here. It's way over in Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And, uh, it's Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. And again, this is a beautiful text. I was actually going to say I would just comment on it, but I reread it this morning again. And I thought, no, I need to actually share this with people. It says here, and I will put again my spirit in you. So you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. You will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior. I will let you good crops, give you good crops of grain and so on and so forth as we read that. But there are promises that we need to take to our heart. And I think too often we bypass these promises and we think, oh, we we deserve them or whatever. God promised to restore Israel not only physically, but spiritually, and to accomplish this, he would give them a new heart for following them and put his spirit within them, and he would transform, you know, and it's a new covenant that was promised, promised ultimately to be fulfilled, of course, in in Christ. Let me leave a thought here. It is a judgment or the purpose to show the righteousness of God in forgiving his people. In this judgment, the records of their lives will be open for the universe to see God will show what happened in the hearts of believers and how they embraced Jesus as their Savior and accepted his spirit in their lives. And, you know, it's all interlinked, the whole Bible. If we would just finish on Hebrews 7.25, I think this is just a wonderful text to finish on. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. We used to say, you know, from the guttermost to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. There is much I could say on that verse alone, but I think it's just so important to read it from Scripture. You know, our past, our present, our future, all enveloped in him. There is a scene showing to Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 3, starting with verse 1 till verse uh, four and five when it's showing that to Joshua the high priest it was offered clean garments and I'm going to read then he showed me Joshua the high priest which is a representant of all Israel all God's people standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick, snatched or plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his clothes. Take off his filthy clothes, which it means all iniquity are removed from him. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. 
and I will put rich garments on you. So it means he was redeemed and he was made perfect in heart, soul, and mind by faith. And verse 5 said, Then I said, put a clean turban, or other version says a headband or a meter on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the, the angel of the Lord stood by. So the meter placed on his head was uh, worn by priests and uh, bore the inscription holiness to the Lord, notwithstanding his former transgression, but he was qualified to minister before God and sanctuary. So all his sins were pardoned and he was made righteous in front of God and clean in front of God. So it means this is an example for us that Jesus can clean us of all our unrighteousness and make us clean again if we come to him and we recognize that his death, his blood is the, the only one to cleanse us. Man cannot meet these charges himself. In his sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea on behalf of all who by repentance and faith have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and vanquishes their accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. His perfect obedience to God's law, even to the death of the cross, has given him all power in heaven and in earth, and he claims of his father mercy and reconciliation for guilty men. But while we should realize our sinful condition, we are to rely upon Christ as our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea in our behalf. He is able to silence the accuser with arguments founded not upon our merits, but on his own. Yes, just very quickly, as Ligia was reading from this passage in the Bible about uh, Joshua, which if you read the Bible and see the comparison that was representing Jesus and all the things which uh, uh, the Bible points out in this case about Joshua, that was about our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, is the only one who could take our sins away. Uh, the only one who was perfect, sinless, as the Bible portrays here that, um, you know, through the angel says, you know, just put that call through, <laughs> cleanse him. But, you know, Jesus was uh, the perfect sacrifice for us all. And without Jesus, uh, we cannot have remission of sin. So true, Nick. You know, I identify with this uh, picture of the high priest standing before the uh, presence of the all in the presence of the Almighty, 
with uh, filthy garments. He must have felt absolutely terrible. And yet the appeal of uh, Jesus to purify his life and rebuking Satan uh, brings a great deal of gratitude to my heart that Jesus, in the condition that I am, if I just come to him, can uh, offer me forgiveness as well. You know, panel, I'm interested in your responses as well to so great and undeserved a salvation through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Anyone like to just um, give his own testimony with regard to this beautiful truth? Wolfgang. What I see here in the book of Hebrews is actually a huge canvas, a broad vista. Salvation covers many aspects, and I'm so grateful that Jesus' sacrifice actually saves us completely, or the text that uh, Helen mentioned before, that he saves to the uttermost. Amen. Because ultimately, salvation must involve freedom from the penalty and from the power and from the presence of sin. Mm-hmm. If Jesus only saved me from the penalty of sin, my personal guilt for sin Uh, for sins committed, would then be gone. But I would still have to deal with the ongoing power and presence of sin in my life and my environment. In other words, the Christian gospel would only be a third of the solution. And that's why I, I believe that the Old Testament sanctuary, in its very detailed picture of the plan of salvation, is actually a beautiful picture that shows us eventually sin can be completely eradicated. Yes. Not just guilt taken away and peace given into my heart. Christ not only washes away my personal guilt and gives me peace in my heart and conscience, he also provides the Holy Spirit to empower my resistance to temptation and the ability to live right, But then he also ends up speaking in the very presence of the Father, as we read there in other verses, in my defense as my high priest or my advocate. He actually speaks in in, in my defense. In this way, my standing before God is totally secure. I have nothing to fear. Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, and he's a perfect sacrifice as well as a high priest, advocate, and mediator and my soon-coming king. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Yes, Helen. When I was saying that verse before, that he is able to save us to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, the uttermost being completely, Mm. absolutely. There is nothing that he cannot forgive, but we need to come to him and ask him for that forgiveness. I'm, I'm greatly encouraged when I read through the scripture and I see the sins of many of the people there, and I know that many of them have been sins that I have committed in my life. I'm humbled, but I'm also elated that I can come to God and he will save me completely, and he has done, um, forgiven my sins of the past. Yes. Joe? Will the mind fails to grasp what it costs Jesus, and it fails to grasp what he has in store for all who come to him. It's an admonition to myself and all, to not harden my heart to God through choosing to go my own way, choosing to worship a God of my own creation, to be my own God, to indulge my own ego. It's a reminder that the only way to find life is to come now, as I am, and give all 
give my all to Jesus. Not that we have or that I have anything worth that anything worth giving that Jesus, you know, it, it's just basically nothing that I have to offer. But what I have, he will recreate and restore. And that's a promise that we can all cling to. But there's also another warning in Hebrews, and that is the warning of drifting along and putting off coming to Jesus for salvation. Maybe another day, but today is the day of salvation. Let me, let us not, let no one delay. Yes. Nick, did you have a response there? Yes, this uh, subject, I think it's the most important in the Bible. You know, we can uh, read the beautiful things uh, in the Bible, but when we talk about um, our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, sometimes we can be uh, short of words and uh, to explain it, unless we really go and understand uh, from the beginning what was God's plan and intention with uh, with us all, with humanity, and particularly after uh, falling into into sin. And all those things in the Old Testament, which we make reference to, to many believers today, many Christians, they may think that um, that's irrelevant. I will say that if we read in the context and understand all those things, as Pastor Stefani and you all pointed out so well, is that we understand our approach about my situation today, now. When all those things which were practiced in the Old Testament, um, we may think that's all gone. Yes, but if we don't understand them, we don't understand even how to come to Jesus now, today. That's what I believe where it says in uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16, that the whole scripture is inspired by God and profitable, you know, to, to teach us, to give instruction, to bring us to the knowledge and understanding of the plan of salvation. And I believe this is wonderful. It's beautiful to see and to understand the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ for us all today. Yes. I remember how terribly afraid I was to go out to at playtime or breaks at school because there was a bully that was always... Um, looking for where I am so that he could bully me. He was a big fellow. Do you know, one of the first things I used to do is quickly scan the playground and hail my brother, shout to him, or call him to be nearby. And he kept an eye on me. You know, <clears throat> I felt safe from accusation and from bullying and from, from, from potential threat because I had somebody that understood me and that loved me. And it gave me great confidence in the in the uh, school play yard. But, you know, in actual fact, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus came to dwell with us and he knows our need. And we can be assured that God is acquainted with our trials our, and he sympathizes with our griefs. And, you know, we can sense strongly that there is hope. There is hope for every man, woman and child I want you to listen to what my favorite text says. Isaiah 59 verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. Panel and listener, the heart of God 
yearns over his earthly children. He yearns with a love that is stronger than death. And in giving up his son, Jesus Christ, he pours out upon us here in all heaven can give in one gift. In fact, he heaps favor upon favor and gift upon gift. And the whole treasury of heaven is open to those that he seeks to save. I know that our Savior understands what we need and is willing to give us all that we need to offer us life in eternity with him. It's natural, therefore, after a study like this, to ask the question, how do we relate to the sacrifice of Jesus and his offer of salvation? For myself and to the fat panel and to every listener, I'd like to urge that we make him the Lord of our lives today. Lydia, would you like to close with prayer for us? Sure. Glorious Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus' sacrifice, for Jesus, your beloved Son, and our beloved Savior. Father, thank you for him volunteering to sacrifice for us. Thank you for his perfect and superior sacrifice to provide us uh, purification from sin, sanctification to serve, and nourishment to grow, to become transformed for complete transformation of our character, making us able to become holy as you, Father, are holy. And one day, be with you and live eternally with you. Father, we are so grateful to you for saving us completely. We bring you our thanks and appreciation, remaining committed to you, to love you forever with all our heart and glorify your holy name forever and ever. In Jesus' precious, wonderful name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, your participation today. This is a, a study which, you know, sometimes requires a little bit more search into the whole Bible. But what I understood today, that uh, Jesus' sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice. Now, human beings have uh, always had that tendency to offer different kinds of sacrifices to God in exchange for... Um, forgiveness and salvation and some offer their heroic acts of uh, penance or uh, even long journeys or even a life a full life of sacrifice thinking that that will do for their sins but as i mentioned at the beginning of the program apostle paul it's encouraging us when he said that we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god May God richly bless you, and I'll invite you to join us again next time when we are going to look into Jesus opens the way through the veil. Until then, may God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.
world that 